Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Mr. Travis McQueen. Mr. McQueen's in the building. Uh, Mr. McQueeb. Dude. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> today we got a Q&A. So before we jump in, I do want to shout out our sponsor, Legion Athletics, the supplement company, the number one supplement company in the industry. Um, that statement is not backed by any official ratings, but I would venture out to say that they are definitely the number one supplement company. And if you look at their crew of athletes and sponsored athletes and podcasts and all those things, it's pretty damn impressive. A lot of really cool people, a lot of really intelligent people, and that's why they are the number one company is because they are actually evidence-based and they put a lot of investments and energy and money into further education, not only for themselves and their products, but also for the industry. They actually fund research studies, sometimes that have nothing to do with supplementation at all. So if you want to save 20% on the best damn supplements you can get on the market, head over to buylegion.com slash boom boom. Um, I personally just hooked Travis up with the ultimate care package. Um, Travis is now the bundle is a uh, you can't you got, get this bundle on the, the website, but it's um, ultimate boom, boom bundle. It is. I w- maybe we could do something like that. The boom, boom bundle. Um, I wonder if it I is. can ask them. I mean, you can kind of go to the, if you go to buylegion.com slash boom, boom, you can see my top products. Oh. But if I had a bundle, it would be like, you can order it and get it all at once, you know, yeah. but also there's a couple that are in my top that are on that page. Cody decided to add on to my protein, multivitamins and gut health yeah. and joint health. So it was fortify the joint supplement, balance the gut health supplement uh, whey protein, um, post workout, the recharge, the creatine formula. And then, uh, there was one more, I think fish oil, fish oil, can't go wrong with fish oil and multivitamin. Did I say that? Yep. Okay. Um, quite the stack, six of those damn things. Um, but that's literally, that's probably the the best stack for most people out there. Um, I would say this, the gut health supplement and joint health supplement is like person dependent uh you don't have to but if you get the multi the fish the creatine and the whey protein you're you're kind of set um i personally take the gut and the joint health supplement as well but we got some questions today all right we are going to start with the first one comes from an anonymous person they say can we can i get your thoughts and experience with using bod pod with clients we've answered something very similar I, we've answered this exact question before, I think, or just body fat scanners, or maybe it was something similar to a uh, InBody or something, but there was one podcast that I just went off on body fat scanners. So the first thing I'm going to say is check out that podcast if you haven't. It's one of the Q&As, but it's in, it's, it's in the title, something about body fat testing or scanning. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a blog on the site um, about this as well, so you can type in body fat testing or scanner on the uh, uh, on the search bar of the blog, and you can really see me go down and break down each and every type of, of tool that you can use to test your body fat and why they're probably just not that great. Um, I don't like bod pod either. Um, not only is it very uncomfortable, uh, I mean, they dunk you in water and you got to stay underwater and stuff. And there, there's basically a formula of, I'd have to read my blog to be honest with you to refresh my memory, but there's a formula of, they're looking at, uh, bubbles and oxygen and stuff underneath the water while you sit down there and that determines something. Um, it's fucking weird. Um, it's just not that accurate. I yeah. mean, it's more accurate than the handheld devices, um, the bioelectrical impedance ones or whatever it is, but it's just, it's just one of the things. It's just not that I, I would say this. If you're, if you're coaching clients, I don't think you should test their body fat at all. I don't because it, it's not very accurate. And the reason that's an issue is number one, it works really well for a lot of gyms that do it at the beginning, whether they use the in body or the bod pod or anything, they'll have a bod pod truck come to their gym it's a really popular thing they a do it at the beginning. Yeah, it comes in like a, it's almost like, imagine like a food truck, but there's like a big ass bod pod in the back. Um, when you said dunk you underwater, I didn't think you carry this thing in a truck. Yeah, I think it's like a, I mean, it's a big pod. It's a bod pod. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, it's like a dunk tank. Okay. You, yeah. you remember the dunk tanks where you throw the thing at the carnival? Yeah, yeah. It's like that almost. Okay. Um, but you're voluntarily going inside of it. And uh, it's, it's popular to do it like pre- fat loss challenge at a gym because if somebody goes in there and they see um 26 percent and that's in the overweight category they're like i need to change this they're motivated to do it you know the problem is is it's so inaccurate that your likelihood of them reading 26 percent again at the end of it is kind of high yeah you know because if they lost this is why you should go read the blog if you're listening to this because the the percentage of 
like the margin of error is crazy. I mean, I want to say it's like as crazy as like 10% margin of error. So this person could lose, let's just be safe and say 5% body fat, which is a ton. And as a female to get, go from 26 to 21 is a lot. Like 21% body fat is, is you're lean, you're healthy. Um, and for you to go through a eight week challenge and lose 5%, but then the margin of error is so big that it still reads 26%. You'd wow. be so fucking pissed. Yeah. And then you feel like you didn't actually lose weight did, or body fat. Did you lose muscle? Because you're down pounds. And now people, I get that question all the time. Like, hey, I think I lost muscle according to this in-body scan. I'm like, it's wrong. Don't listen to it. Like, you're just frustrating yourself for no reason, you know? Um, so I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. I don't. If, you're, if you have access to a lab, um, like my good friend Chris Barricat does a lot of research on recomposition and stuff. So he'll use DEXA, ultrasound, things like that. But he works in a lab, you know? A session with an ultrasound that's not paid by fucking insurance because you tore a, a ligament or something is thousands of dollars. Yeah. Right? Like, it's a very expensive. Um, nobody's doing that to test a that. Yeah. So, look at, do measurements, look in the mirror, weigh yourself. Copy. Probably good. All right. Uh, next one comes from Linda. It says, forcing a workout when super fatigued. Uh is it okay to take to simply take more than a few days off to recharge? Is it okay to take more than a few days? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a way to look at soreness, right? If you're So if you're super fatigued, I, I would always ask the client, like, what kind of fatigued are you? You know, if they're like, I have energy, but my, my muscles are so sore. Like, okay, well, when was the last time you trained? Three days ago? You probably shouldn't be that sore anymore. Unless, it, you know, if you did a hard leg day and you're sore for two or three days that's okay. But your next session should be an upper body day anyway. So I would say go train. Um, if you're do a leg day and your legs are still sore four or five days later, I'm like, Hey, you're doing too much. So we, we don't need to skip training. We need to lower the volume you're doing in a session period. Drop a set, drop an exercise, do something to lessen the, the stimulus, the stress on your, on your muscles. Um, if they're telling me that they're just lethargic, they don't have energy. You're either training too hard, too much. You're not getting enough sleep. You're dieting too hard. There's something going on that is causing your stress to be way higher than your recovery. And this is that whole like sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. Sympathetic is stress response. Work, family, finance, training in the gym, diet, lack of sleep, whatever the stresses are, you need to match those with recovery modalities to try to balance out that. It's never going to be perfect, but that's a case of, yeah, you probably should take a couple extra days out of the gym, but ultimately, I mean, you need to, you need to fix whatever is causing this overflow of stress. Whether that is your your shitty job or your your poor sleep or your diet isn't in check, whatever it may be, too much training, you got to dial in whatever it is and just reduce the stress response. Um, but in general, I think it's smart. Listen to your body. Take a couple extra days if you need it, yeah. and then go back to the root cause and fix it. Because I don't think anybody, unless you're brand new to the gym, I don't think anybody should need more than two days off in the gym. Yeah, you know, a perfect split. You know, you're training four days a week. You're only taking two days off once a week. You know, if that, you actually don't even have to. Because if you do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, you're only taking Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday off. So it's only one day at a time. If you do Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, you take Saturday, Sunday off, that's fine too. But you never need more than two days off in the gym. And that's how I prefer it because it's a good way to know you're not doing too much, yeah. right? And I'd rather you do, this is the whole RPE thing, right? It applies on a global level as well. If RPE 8 is better than RPE 10, basically two reps shy of failure compared to going to failure, because you get the same amount or, or damn near close to the same amount. Maybe you stimulate the muscle to grow and you get simulate strength to grow a little bit more at 100%, right, going to failure. But the recovery demand is so high that you can't get back in the gym and perform at that high level uh, as quickly. So you're better off doing two reps shy of failure all the time, right? It's the same thing with this. You're better at going close to as far as you can. This is the whole, like, we had a conversation about maximum recoverable volume. Yeah. Instead of reaching that point, find maximum adaptive volume. That point where you're like, if I do too, any much more, like if I went a little bit further, I'd be struggling to recover, if recovering at all. So I'm going to stay here because I'm pushing it. And I'm close to failure, but I'm not there. So I can keep coming back and hitting it hard. Um, that's how your training should be. So you shouldn't need multiple days off. But every once in a while, you don't know what your boundaries are if you don't go too hard. Totally. So if you're at that point, you got to take a couple extra days off, take a couple extra days off. Or I always tell people too, if I go on vacation or on a trip or something, Sometimes I will purposely train back to back to back to back to back. Like before Dallas, when we went for your bash party, I think I came in you know, even on a Sunday, but it was like, instead of doing four sessions a week for, you know, week after week, I did like, it was basically 
I did uh, Monday through Thursday. I took Friday off, and then I was just Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We left Thursday. Yeah. So I did way more crammed in because I knew when I went, I was like, I'm not going to wake up and do push-ups. I'm not going to walk. I'm not going to do anything when we're gone. I'm just going to party and hang out. So I'm going to take a full five days off, especially because I came back, and I was still like, no, I'm not yeah. training. <laughs> but um, sometimes you need that. Totally. You know? Yeah, and I think after you find that boundary, then you know it for... You know how far to push it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's like the big key of consistency too because if you stop for a while, you're going to come back in and be like, fuck, I don't remember where that is. And sometimes you, you go too hard at first. And this is... I, I get this question all the time too. Haven't been in the gym for a while. How do I ramp training back up? And I always crack up because my, my answer is so simple. There's no science behind this. Just fucking ease into it. Yeah. Just do a little bit. Do two days. See what how you feel. Do three days. See how you feel. Do four days. See how you feel. And then if that's enough, to keep it there. You know, it's just patience. Really it. Okay, cool. So next question is coming from Jen Johnson. Says, my, my question is around coaching. I'd love to know your advice. Uh, I'd love to, know, love to know your advice, how you navigate and what you tell your coaches around consuming information and not feeling overwhelmed. I've been coaching for years and am always trying to learn more, but find myself feeling overwhelmed at times by how much information is out there and oftentimes conflicting information. Is it time to stop following so many health and nutrition accounts? Um, yes and no. I mean, that, that, you know, sometimes for people, they need to eliminate the sources of information in order to uh, lower the information overload. I do hear that being effective. I think what helps with my coaches in this, um, and not a lot of them have problems. I think we all suffer with this at the beginning, but number one, I talk to them so often that I'm able to reassure them over and over and over and over again. Um, number two, uh, we have a chief science officer on our team, so it's easy for him to educate them and show rationalization yeah. around these topics. And that's, I mean, that's not a... a Luxury everybody has, obviously, but um, that helps us personally. Uh, and then I would say one thing I always reminded them is that, you know, in this setting of coaching, you're the doctor and your client is the patient, right? So when you go to the doctor, number one, you don't ever step in there and assume that you know just as much or, or more than the doctor. And if you do, you're going to the wrong doctor. Um, in fact, you know, not many that people can be this. applicable here too. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but I actually had a situation. I switched doctors. Uh, I was going to a doctor's office in Auburn just cause that's where I went back in the day. And I just kept going there. I went and the lady literally told me that creatine was dangerous. Never forget this. I was like probably like 22. It was, it was like, I finally went back to the doctor after like three or four years for like a physical or checkup or whatever. And I was like, no, you're wrong. And like, we like debated and I brought up research and she was just like stumped and she was like, well, that's not what we're here for. She was basically trying to talk me out of taking creatine. I was like, you're, you're absolutely wrong. That makes no sense. And then it was intermittent fasting. And I was like, well, I don't, I mean, you're actually wrong there too. And then, uh, and then I watched her, uh, cause I was there for eczema cause I have eczema. I watched her Google search with a symptom and I was like, what the fuck? I can Google. I know what WebMD is. Yeah. Like, oh, dude, I was heated. I literally was like, I left and switched doctors. Um, and then now I need a new doctor because I moved next door to him. He's like, yeah, I could be your doctor if we're friends now. <laughs> um, but, uh, so I guess it can happen. But the point is you shouldn't be in that position. And a coach is always going to be in that position. So when you're a coach, you should just remember, like, you're the doctor, they're the patient. The patient doesn't come in and the doctor says, hey, well, I mean... You could do this, this, or this. Which one do you think you should take? You know, they say, no, this is your prescription to fix your problem. So as a coach, even if you're like 90% sure, which is common, it's not a bad thing because there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. There's so many ways to diet and so many ways to adjust and manipulate and all that stuff. Even if you're 90% sure, the client should and usually does have full confidence in you because you're the expert, not them. So information that you're taking in might overwhelm you but the problem only becomes if you let that overwhelm become lack of confidence in your abilities. And that happens a lot. So reminding my coaches that, that they're the expert, their clients mm -hmm. are not, helps them quite a bit. Um, and then truthfully, I think that the best way to, best way I got over this, and this is where Brandon helps our team a lot too, is really trying to understand, one, how to interpret research, and two, how to understand the basics of, of human physiology from a diet perspective. And what I mean by that is, you know, I say this all the time, but basically everything comes down to calories, right? 
Well, if you if you understand why everything comes down to energy balance and thermodynamics and what the relationship of calories actually have in your body uh, pertaining to health markers, hormones, deficit, surplus, weight gain, fat loss, all these kind of things, insulin, everything. When you understand the concept of thermodynamics at the deepest root, you're able to kind of put a filter on all the information you take in and better understand it and, and better understand what's right and what's wrong and what's fluff. Because there's a lot of things out there that get overly hyped that if you factor in calories, you're kind of like, eh, it holds way less weight. And it actually makes our job easier because we can show clients the, the proper way to do things. Um, even like, I'll use intermittent fasting because I just talked about that, but there's there's so many different benefits to it, but re- study after study after study shows the same benefits from a calorie deficit. So then it, you go back and it's like, okay, well, does intermittent fasting really cause autophagy or is it the calorie deficit? Because calorie deficits cause autophagy as well. Um, is intermittent fasting really improving insulin sensitivity or does the calorie deficit and fat loss improve insulin sensitivity? Does intermittent fasting cause weight loss or is it the calorie deficit? And time after time, it's like, eh, it's just calorie deficit, calorie deficit, calorie deficit. So intermittent fasting just makes the calorie deficit easier for some people. But knowing that, it allows me to not get overwhelmed when new research about intermittent fasting comes out because I can put a filter on it and go, it's actually probably because of X, Y, Z indirectly. And then you can dig into it and go, yep, that's it. Every once in a while you see something comes out that's like, oh, shit, that's actually pretty damn interesting. Like yeah. nutrition was one of those things, um, which is basically classic intermittent fasting completely flipped around. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's ultimately just coming, just having confidence in yourself. I think accountability from a mentor or somebody ahead of you helps. I know that helps my team. Um, and then understanding research and understanding the underlying principles of human phy- physiology, thermodynamics, it just allows you to put this filter on all the information coming in and, and understand what's right, what's wrong. Um, and you can kind of ignore certain things because you don't need to worry about it, yeah. you know. But totally. some people need to ignore the information. I personally don't like to because – find it fascinating. Yeah, and you can, I think you can interpret bullshit in facts mm-hmm. a lot better than some people. Yeah. And that's why I think they're kind of asking about. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, cool. Let's go to the next one. Uh, we got one that comes from oh, I, IRTAZA. IRTAZA. Is Urt or Urtaza. Urtaza. Uh, question is, what should onboarding look like with nutrition coaching for clients? What are you looking for? What's a few quick wins you set out for, for when coaching? Most of the time when people ask questions like this, I always just say, we have our systems. Yeah. So I had a couple of people ask story questions and I did that. I was like, we have our systems with like the shh emoji. And then he DM'd me and he was like, damn it. <laughs> uh, I mean, some of it I got to leave out because that's, you know, we... It's our systems. Yeah, it's our systems. I mean, we... Have the best system for a reason, and we're going to keep it that way uh, by not telling. (laughs) So, uh, but what does onboarding look like for a nutrition client? You know, I think this this is the way I would answer that question. Number one, um, if you're a coach, you should know exactly what type of information you're trying to get in. Can you say make it make it as personable as you can? Yeah, absolutely. Make it as personal and individual as you can. I don't know what I can say because I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. Well, get, get like get as much info as you can from them so you can make it as individualized as you can, um, make it an experience. You know, that's something that I've tried to do is like, I mean, this is, the, so this is what I will say. Cause I know it's a coach that's asking this. Mm-hmm. Um, and for all the coaches, this is the advice I would give. And for all the clients, this is already what we do. So obviously you know where to come if you, <laughs> if you want this, but what you should be doing is looking at your client journey and making each and every single touch point a phenomenal experience. Because you got to think about it. Somebody, first and foremost, finds you on Instagram, on a podcast, a on YouTube, on Facebook, somewhere, right? They, they hear about you from somebody else. So this is why, like, part of the fake it till you make it thing is true. And I don't mean, like, f- you, you should be fake. But if you're having a bad fucking day, and this is like the cleaner, closer, whatever those, I can't remember now, but Tim Grover's thing. Yeah. This is where I think you got to be a cleaner of, like, I don't give a fuck what's going on. Put a smile on your face and be positive. Be enthusiastic. Give a good experience. You know, because in that moment, you're there for them. They don't give a shit what's going on in your life. They're coming to you for help. That's why I don't post negative shit. That's why I don't, like, see the point of Instagram being a negative place. It's like, I'm here to give you more, to be better, to give you value, to present something, to give you an experience. So every conversation I have, 
has to be that way. So my mindset is always like that first touch point is going to be contact, uh, content of some sort, or it's going to be somebody going to my website, right? Or it's going to be uh, somebody hearing from me from somebody else, which means content, website, and what I've done for that person that said something about me has to be phenomenal, has to be positive. How else are they going to hear about me? I think content and website are the same thing. Close to it, but yeah. like, I mean, homepage, there's no content. I mean, it's tech, it's copy, but. I think there's value in content on there. Of, of course. Okay. We, we feature content there. I guess what I mean by copy is it's a, it's a page that doesn't change. It's not new and updated. Okay, okay. Um, and, and what I mean by that too is what is, your, what is your experience like when you go to the website? Okay. You know, and this is where people don't think about this, but if, what is the difference between phone and mobile? Go through it on your own. How is that experience? You know, how long do they have to scroll before they get value? That'll determine experience. We've talked about this. How fast does shit load? Yeah. That determines your experience. We look at every little detail. Uh, what's, uh, what colors, uh, sizes, and white space and fonts. This is something I talked to with Boris. What experience does that present to people? I get it. Yeah. This is shit people don't think about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And this is kind of going into some of the secrets. But <laughs> if somebody goes to my website, I want them to have a positive experience. And it's subconscious. You don't even realize that our fonts and our space across p- pictures and text and stuff are designed to make sure it's easier on your eyes. Yeah. That determines your subconscious feeling about being on my website. How I treat somebody when they tell somebody about me, it's based on what experience they had with me. You know what I mean? So number one, all of those things, their first touch point experience, then they, then they apply. So where are your applications? How easy are your applications to find? And, and what is that application experience like, right? Once they apply, who gets in contact with them or is it automated, Right. I tend to think personability is a little bit better than automation, but that costs money and delegation to get people to do it. But point is, is they figure out who you are. They find out how to apply from an application. They get some kind of feedback from that application and thank you. Then they get in contact with somebody on the phone or email or video, however you're doing shit, you're communicating with them. That's an experience. Then they get some kind of starting protocols questionnaire. Everybody does it. Everybody does a questionnaire intake or assessment form. If you're a good online coach, you kind of have to. Um, So if you don't, <laughs> you're fucked. <laughs> That's an experience. Yeah. How long it takes an experience, how you present it as experience, how you communicate as experience, how they update you as an experience. Every single touch point of their journey from when they figure out who the hell you are to the day they leave your company because they got what they needed and they learned how to get the result. Those are all touch points along the way of the experience. And if you're smart, and I've done this on a massive whiteboard at first, and I've broken every single thing down to create systems around it, every single little experience and touch point has to give these people a certain feeling. And that is what you should be focused on. And when you do that, you don't need to ask me what my onboarding system is because you'll figure it out. You'll figure out what you would want to see. Don't do the fast route. Don't do the easy route. Don't do the convenient route unless convenient is what they want. And you got to create a system that gives you what you need and the convenience they want. Um, but this is, this is truly, and this is the last thing I'll say, because I don't want to go on a rant and I already am, but and say everything we do, but this is what separates a online coach and an online coaching company, yeah. in my opinion, right? This is what separates it because the attention of, to detail that I have on these kind of things is, is not normal, but it's what creates the level of experience that w- we set the standard for, you know? So um, probably not the answer you expected, but like map out your client journey and create an experience, Boom. period. Cool. Uh, we'll go to the next one. It comes from Julie Smith. It says, just got back into the gym after three months surgery recovery. Obviously, some gains lost. How long does it take to rebuild muscle to where you were before surgery? She said three months. Mm-hmm. Strength will come back faster after three months uh, because it's neurological, and I think it takes longer because a lot of strength is familiarity. So, in three months, you don't lose the mental and neurological ability or uh, memory to perform a squat. You know, like it, it's you know they always like the the analogy they say is like um, oh it's like riding a bike. Yeah. You know I haven't ridden a bike in years, dude. You get me on a bike, I'll do a bunny hop. It's like done a million of them. You know, um, with my luck, I'd bunny hop up the curb, catch the front tire, <laughs> and eat shit. But. Yeah. Um, Dude, I'm going to need to get bikes soon. I think yeah. Blakely's first gonna day say. of preschool. Yeah. I'm going to orientation tonight. Ride your bike to school with her. Fuck. I yeah. could. Yeah. Except I'd be stuck getting up that big-ass hill. But oh, uh, It's at the bottom of the hill? Yeah. It's at the bottom of the hill. I thought it was over by the cafe. That is at the bottom of the hill. Okay. Keep going. The 
Depends what hill you're talking about. You know what Not I mean? Not the big to Holly Hill. No, but the hill down to the cafe. Oh. That hill's a beast, dude. I've done sprints up it. Oh. That fucker's like two two football fields probably, 200 yards. Okay. Um, it's not much when you're driving, but when yeah. you start running or something, that's true. Um, but, uh, but it's like riding a bike, right? Like if I haven't barbell squatted in a long time, I'm not saying you can go throw a 225 on the bar and squat, but put an empty bar on your back. You, you'll be able to squat by the end of the day. If you haven't squatted in three months, you know what I mean? You got to work out some kinks, warm up properly, focus on form. Maybe you don't add any weight, but the movement will still be with you. So the weight will increase very quickly. Now, after three months of not training, you are going to lose a lot of muscle tissue. You are. Um, 50% of what you lose is going to be what they call muscle memory, uh, which is similar to what I just talked about. But what I just talked about is more neurological. So it's what you, your, your brain and your nervous system can do with the movement patterns um, and proprioception and all that. But muscle memory is quite literally your body remembering muscle tissue it had. So yeah. it's, it's essentially think of it like uh, a dried up sponge. But you pour some water on it, the sponge is still going to work. It's going to fill back up, you know. But after a while, they get pretty wilted. They're not going to probably hold as much water. There's less sponge there. Not really. I don't really know if that's accurate. But um, muscle tissue is that way. So if I lose half, 50% of my muscle in, in uh, uh, I'm sorry, if I lose two pounds of muscle, let's say, in three months, 50%, so about a pound of that, is, is going to be replenished with water, glycogen, training again, pushing pushing fluid, carbohydrates, nutrients into the cell. It's muscle memory. It's it's still there. It's just depleted. Mm. The other 50% might actually quite literally be atrophied and gone. You got to spend some time rebuilding it. So when I had surgery on my knee, I would say I probably took about three months total off of leg training because I had probably like, I tore it and then I had to have surgery. Actually, it was, I think I delayed surgery four weeks because remember I tore my meniscus and they were like, we can get you in next week. And I was like, well, I have, a, I have seminar every weekend for the next three weeks. Yeah. I had the anytime fitness yep. workshop and then I had the mastermind and then I had something else I was doing. So I pushed it out so I could do three seminars on crutches, Cody Smith's gym. That's yep. what I was. Um, <laughs> they're like, wait, you want to not have surgery? Your knee is completely destroyed. You got a seminar? I'm like, yeah, I'll do it on crutches. It's fine. Um, I can't be on drugs all like loopy on painkillers. Yeah, no way. So I had like a month before I had surgery and then I had full eight weeks of recovery uh, on crutches. And then at that third month, I started doing um, walking with blood flow restriction, uh, leg extensions with ankle weight, uh, like partial rep squats, air squats, stuff like that. So very mild training on my legs, obviously. But I could finally stand and lift upper body and everything. Um, and it took a while to build that muscle back. I lost two to three inches around my quad and hamstring. Um, and when I did a DEXA scan, I lost like three to four pounds of muscle on my quad, wow. my, my femur. Yeah. Stupid. Um, I would say it probably took me at least six months, if not eight to get all the muscle back, but probably half of it was like quick within yeah. a month. It just came like right you just back. Explained. Yeah, exactly. Uh, training again, bringing blood flow there, eating properly. It came back quick. And then the other part was slow. So strength might come quick. Muscle, half of it will come quick, and then the other half is going to take a while. I mean, three months is a good amount of time. Yeah. I think atrophy settles in after uh, four weeks of not training, they say. Totally. So. All right, cool. We'll go to the next one from Laura Turan. Any big difference between drinking a bang or a rock star versus pre-workout? Mm. Good question. Uh, <laughs> not really. Um. I mean, yes, actually there is. It depends on the pre-workout though. So there's there's a couple factors here. Number one, um, Rockstar might have about the same, if not a little bit more caffeine than some pre-workouts. Um, it depends on the pre-workout. I don't even, I, my pre-workout is, is stimulant-free. There's no caffeine in it because I have too many Rockstars throughout the day. Uh, Bang is very high caffeine. I want to say it's at like 350 grams, milligrams of caffeine or something. A cup of coffee is like 50 to 100. 150 if you have really strong caffe uh, caffeinated coffee. Um, so 350 to 500 milligrams in a can is pretty fucking explosive. Wow. Um, I purposely drink Rockstar because it's less caffeine, and that means I can have multiple in a day. <laughs> um, Capital M on that multiple. Yeah. Uh, I would do Red Bull because Red Bull is even less. I think the same size can of Red Bull that I do with the Rockstar is like, 80, maybe 120 milligrams. Rockstar's 160. Wow. It's way less. But Ro Red Bull is literally three times as expensive as Rockstar. Why is that? And it has less caffeine. I don't know. And they're killing it. 
Yeah. But I'm, I always look at, I'm like. Original, I think. I think it is the original energy drink. Yeah. But it's like, damn, you, because of that, you can charge three ninety nine for an 8-ounce can, and I can get a 16-ounce Rockstar for a buck fifty. Yeah. Like, crazy. I'm good. My Riggles are, they're good, but. Um, you can look at the caffeine on pre-workout. It's somewhere in between there. You know, some of them only have 150, 200, like cup of coffee. And then some of them do have pretty high doses. For one scoop. For one scoop. Yeah. Um, it's all about the product. Uh, and then same with this, you should never get one that has a proprietary blend, which just says like pre-workout matrix. And then it has like six ingredients and it all is like 3,300 milligrams combined, but he doesn't tell you how many milligrams of each ingredient it is, which means that they probably put something really cheap in there at a high dosage and then barely anything of the other ones to save money. And that's a lot of people got caught doing that once proprietary blends got kind of like realized what it was. So, um, but the difference mainly here is that um, pre-workouts are going to have other things in it. Some like Bang has some, like I think Bang has creatine, uh, but it's some weird kind of creatine. It says it has aminos, but I don't give a shit about aminos. Um, it, it, but like a good pre-workout is going to have citrulline malate, betaine, beta alanine, um, maybe arginine, but usually citrulline malate takes care of that. Um, sometimes like uh, glycerol or glycine, which is just going to help like with a pump. It's like a little bit of a syrupy like carb, I believe. Um, so it kind of just depends on the pre-workout. I take legions, stim free, so there's no caffeine, but it has all those other things in it. Um, and those are all been proven to help buffer lactate in the muscle, help, uh, endurance with your repetitions. If it has creatine in it, it's going to help with muscle recovery, hydration of the muscle. Um, betaine has been shown to help, uh, body recomposition. So, uh, it promotes fat loss and muscle growth. It's a newer supplement. Um, very snail pace. It's not something extravagant, but you should be taking it if you're physique focused, uh, it's not, and it's not expensive. Um, but it has all these things that are going to help the pump, help endurance, help recovery, help hydration of the muscle, whereas a rock star is basically just caffeine and artificial sweeteners. Yeah. Right? Um, but the main component of what increases performance in the gym is caffeine. So from that perspective, there's no difference. Now, if you're in it for you want to make sure that you can grind your way through a long set better, you want to recover faster between sets, you want to uh, get a better pump, then you might want to consider a pre-workout versus just caffeine. Um, Caffeine is the, the main component that's beneficial, but all those other ones that kind of add that like little bit, one to 5%, which I think is valuable. Um, and that's another plug for Legion. They have the best pre-workout somewhat, in my opinion. Totally. And they actually did a research study of their, excuse me, of their stim-free one, and, they, and it showed pretty, Grant Tinsley, who we've had on the podcast, actually ran the study. Um, and it actually showed really favorable results, uh, and that was without caffeine, which is cool because everybody kind of always just says, ah, oh, it's just the caffeine that works. Well, now it's like, no, it's not just the caffeine. There's more to it. So if you live a high-stress lifestyle or you're training in the afternoon like I do, having a or you drink too much caffeine as is, having a stim-free pre-workout is nice because you get most of the benefits. Um, and just taking pre-workout kind of like placebos you into having more energy so you can kind of do without the caffeine, you know? Totally. That's good. All right, let's get into this next one. It says... Oh, let's talk foot. Oh, it's from Kathy Siley. It says, let's talk footwear. That's be interesting. A trainer at my gym saw my sneakers were slightly elevated at the heel and said I should wear flat shoes. Did this matter? And if so, what is the opt- optimal footwear? Okay, so I'm just going to like, this will be quick, and I'm just going to be honest. I'm not, I'm not a foot guy. Like, um, it sounds weird, but uh, I, I just... There's like, there's a science and art to feet, like with postural cues, exercise, uh, ankle inversion and pronation. Um, and, uh, and I'm not going to get in the nitty gritty of that just cause I'm not, I'm not super comfortable, but there is value in like barefoot training was a big thing for a while. Right. Um, which I'm also, uh, like hygiene is like a very important thing to me. So when I'm in a public gym and I see people with bare feet, it kind of grosses me out, not into it. Like I'm. I will do socks, just socks in my gym that I own, that only people I know come into <laughs> sometimes. And even that's rare. Mm-hmm. You never see me out there barefoot. I just think it's gross. Yeah. Like um, giving people athletes feet, foot and shit. Like, no. Um, but uh, there is benefit to your your feet being engaged with the floor from a posture perspective, from an ankle health perspective, from a movement perspective. Um even from a neural perspective, uh, your toes being able to actually touch the floor and grip. Like, you got to think about it like this. Imagine if you imagine if you wore socks on your hands or mittens, right? And you just – socks are better because there's no opposable thumbs. Yeah. And that's just how you had to live your life for years. 
If you did that since you were born, you had tight socks on your hands. Today, your fingers would be, one, you wouldn't have any nerves in them, so you'd barely be able to feel and have sense through them. And two, you wouldn't be able to move much. They'd probably be like flippers, Yeah, you know? It's kind of what we do with our feet, right? And you, so there's a lot of science that shows, like, we actually should, like, stretch our toes and, like, try to grip the floor. And people should technically be able to go like this, like, lift up their pinky by itself, lift up their whatever toe the ring toe is, <laughs> their middle toe, their yeah. index toe, their big toe, you know? You should be able to move them like your fingers. Not many people can. I can't. I can do my pinky and that's it. But you can't move your big toe. I can spread them all out, but I can't individually move my big toe without moving the rest. Like, so if I put my hand on the table, I can move my thumb up and all my fingers stay flat yeah. to the table. I don't think I can do that mm. without lifting up this middle finger. You know, it's very hard. Um, and it makes sense. And at the same time, I'm, I'm not a monkey. I don't need to use them to grab stuff that, yeah. you know, um, I'll grab Blakely's toys and like throw them at her and stuff sometimes. But it's the only thing I need them for. But the point is, is your posture and your ankle mobility and stuff like that can be affected by your, your foot's ability to move with the floor and sense the feet. But when we have socks and shoes with a big sole, it eliminates our ability to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think it is important. Uh, is it so important that you need to never wear those shoes again? Not really. You know, like there's also value in saying like, you know, comfort. Because when you're doing dynamic work, jump, sprint, stuff like that, you literally will bruise the shit out of your feet without wearing Nikes with soles or something, you know? And there, so there's, there's also this like adaptation curve. Like I'm not willing to spend months on end until my feet get so tough that I can run and sprint and jump with them and build calyx on them. You know what I mean? Like that's just, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Um, so if you have, if you have back issues, if you have knee issues, if you have issues, injuries and aches and pains in your joints, it's worth doing some um, ankle and feet exercises, doing some exercises barefoot or with socks on. Cause you can move them more um, or getting some, uh, some, I have like those uh, moves, I think they're called, or like Vibrams where they're like um, flat foot, wide toe box, and you can just have more minimalistic feet or footwear. It is beneficial. Yeah. Um, I have those ones and I love them for like deadlifting and lunch, stuff like that. But when it comes to jumping or running or even just the way they look, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a Nike training guy or Adidas and stuff like that, you know? Um, so there's benefit, but I don't think you need to like worry. Like you're not going to break your back because you're wearing shoes with heels on it. You know, and there's also benefit to elevated heels during squats because it removes some of the need to be have ankle mobility and you can load heavier and stay more upright. Totally. Um, is it the most functional thing? No, but sometimes function and performance are different, you know, like uh, a slingshot or a bench suit. Is that functional? No, it's using something to enhance our ability to lift heavier so we can be, get stronger. That's what powerlifters do. Um, why do weightlifters in the Olympics wear lifting shoes with elevated heels? Is it because it's all optimally functional no it's because they're trying to perform at their highest level so there's certain things that maybe aren't the best or most optimal or functional but if you want to perform at a higher level you do them anyway yeah. you know so i think it's it's a, it's double-edged sword totally you know good good all right we will go on to the next one we got oh it looks like we got another question from irtaza mm. Ertz, urtaza or that's what i said who knows though yeah urtaza uh it says how do you normally coach overweight clients, 50 to 70 pounds plus, because it's often a different style of coaching method? doesn't have to be. Uh, I don't think so. Mm. I think this is where, you know, it, it, it all depends on their education level and their, uh, their willingness and buy-in to learn. Because the way I look at it is, like, why would I, like, treat you differently because you have 50 to 70 pounds to lose? Like, are you coherent and able to track macros? Yes. Cool. Do you understand that training is important? Yes. Okay, cool. Then what, what's different here? You know, now if somebody's 50, 70 pounds overweight and they don't know macros and they eat fast food every day, of course, we're, we're focusing on a little bit different things. Doesn't mean I'm not going to track macros. I might have looser, uh, uh, looser ranges or less, uh, specificity within the diet. But a lot of times I'm going to use the same exact methods because I know they work. Yeah. And the person who has 50, 70 pounds to lose needs that weight loss more than the person that has five to 10 pounds to lose. So why would I change my method to get them there? You know, the only time I'm going to change my method is if they have a lower education level right now, cause I'm going to teach them. And in that scenario, I might start slower. I might do less. Um, you know, obviously the more advanced somebody gets, the more 
technical and advanced and specific the, the, the protocols get. But I think a lot of people assume when somebody has more weight to lose that they shouldn't track macros or they're, they're not using periodization or anything like that. And it's just not the case. Yeah. It's just uh, a longer term periodization scale. It's uh, maybe a less aggressive diet. It's more habit based. Um, there's, there, there's more focused on habits, not because the other person shouldn't be focused on them, but because they're already doing them. They've already focused on them and learned those habits. That's why they are where they are and only have five pounds to lose. So um, it's my methods don't change. It's always individual. So, you know, whether the person has 10 or 100 pounds to lose, it, I'm meeting them where they're at. We have to have some kind of metrics to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. And maybe our starting point's just a little bit different. Totally. You know, but, um, but the tailored coaching method is tailored. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily different. I mean, it, it's always different. But that's the whole purpose. It's tailored to them. So I can't say that we change. I think the method is the same. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's the tailored coaching method, you know? Yeah. So. Cool. All right. We will keep on going here. We'll go from uh, Kathy Siley again. Thoughts on kombucha? Um, overly hyped. It tastes okay. I mean... Um, so kombucha is a drink. It's a probiotic drink. It's fermented alcohol, basically. Um, and it has probiotic, natural probiotics in it. Uh, it's probiotics were like super, super hyped up. Um, they actually just reviewed a, a, a study on probiotics in mass and it was good. It was a good review. And there's, there's very, I think the problem with probiotics is they got marketed as everybody needs these to help their gut. Uh, and there's all these healthy, crazy, crazy health benefits. In reality, it's a very specific group of people. Um, for example, if you're taking, we were talking about this earlier, antibiotics. Yeah. You should take a probiotic because there's research that shows antibiotics can affect the gut bacteria microbiome that's already there and certain probiotics and prebiotics can actually help influence that positively. So you don't get the, the, um, symptoms that it usually causes. Um, but you know, it's, it's very, very specific, which makes it hard because most products are very general. So you should almost go to a gut specialist and ask them, you know, what kind of probiotic should I get? Because each probiotic has a different core bacteria with a certain strain. And what that means is that the ones that are very general might have a little bit of each strain, but you might need a lot of one specific strain, which means you need a completely different product. So I think you need to do your research before you get into probiotics. I don't think kombucha is going to solve that problem for you. I don't yeah. think it's unhealthy for you. It's, it's, it can be quote unquote healthy for your gut, but I definitely think it's overplayed. And, uh, the fact that 95% of kombucha has a bunch of sugar in it too. I don't see the benefit of drinking it in your diet. It's a waste of carbs and it's not that much benefit. It's overly hyped. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things that everything got fortified with probiotics once probiotics were discovered. Totally. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they do that with protein, like Snickers protein, special K protein, yeah. like protein water. I'm like, that's impossible. Protein has calories. How's this <laughs> protein water? Um, like everything just came out like that. Um, or even like milk was now like fortified with protein. It's like, no, it's just milk. Milk has protein. Like you're just putting protein on the carton because, you know, it's going to sell more. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is smart. I mean, it's you're saying the, the protein water is fake or something? They probably put amino acids in it or something. Oh. But it didn't last long on the shelves. Yeah. I remember it coming out and it totally. just being like, the fuck is this? I remember too, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we'll go. The next one is from anonymous. Uh, says, should I reduce my client's neat while on a reverse? What, uh, as in like walking less steps, et cetera. Only if it's a problem. Um, so, so here's the thing with reverse dieting and neat. If, if somebody needs to reverse diet and they're doing like 20 to 25,000 steps a day, which is just absurd, you don't need to be doing that much, then 100%. Because now they're changing their lifestyle in order to try to walk that much. Um, and beyond a certain point, you're not going to get caloric benefits. And if they've been doing it a long time, they've already adapted to it anyway. So my a theory there would be increased calories. Then the next adjustment is reducing steps. Increased calories, excuse me, reduce steps. And going back and forth because they just don't need to be stepping that much, period. Um, however, if somebody is reverse dieting and they have an average amount of steps, maybe their day-to-day -day life, like, so like right now, my average step count is about 13,000 and I purposely try to do that. I get up a couple times throughout the day and walk. I walk when I'm on calls, um, at night I take a walk. I usually try to hit between 10 and 15 and my average usually gets about 13,000. Um, and that doesn't include my workout cause I take off my or ring during that. Um, if I was reverse dieting and I looked back after two weeks of reverse dieting and now I'm at 
14 on average. I was like, yeah, I added a thousand steps. I wouldn't stop that because what's going to happen is if I feel okay, my biofeedback's fine. That's the, that's the process of uh, G flux, eat more, uh, lose more, right? Um, eat more, move more, lose more essentially. Yeah. So this idea of increasing calories and losing weight, which is typically the process of hyper responders reverse diet, you reverse diet them and they look leaner and they lose body fat and they lose weight. And the reason is because they're not tracking their steps and they can't track their, their performance or velocity in the gym, which is very hard to do anyway, but you increase calories, they're going a little bit harder in the gym and they just naturally step more throughout the day. So if you reverse diet for three months and they increase steps by 5,000 and they're training hard in the gym, they're like, dang, we added a thousand calories and I'm still the same weight. This is dope. But if you would have told them to step less to try to control their need, they would have gained weight or not been able to add as many calories. So it kind of depends on the person. Most people would rather naturally just accidentally step more often because they're just moving more, which is healthy for you. And eat way more food and end up leaner, you know? So I'm a fan of reversing and moving more. I don't see, I don't see why you wouldn't. Um, and that's kind of what happened to me. Like I, uh, I brought calories up and I saw an increase, but then after, after that increase, I just noticed it and was like, Oh, I'm gonna keep them here because then I can stay at a higher caloric intake. Um, but yeah, so it kind of depends on the scenario. Somebody's in a bad place. You don't always want them to move more, but if somebody feels good and biofeedback's fine, I would say milk it. Stay the same. Yeah. Use it. All right, cool. Um, we will go to Susan Lenderts. Uh, if you could only buy one piece of cardio equipment for a home gym, what would it be and why? Ooh, the home gym thing let's, threw me off. Let's already assume you walk a lot. I was going to say, the first thing that came to mind was sled. I think the sled, ideally you get a sled that you can push and pull. That's probably the most underutilized tool. The problem is you need space for it. So mm-hmm. the second she said garage, like, oh, we can't do that. Uh, most gyms don't have a sled, but, um, most home gyms don't have sled. Yeah. And most gyms don't either. Oh yeah. There's not a lot of gyms have those unless you have a turf section. Yeah. You know, not that many gyms have a turf section. There's some like 24 hour fitness super sports that have them now, wow. but they'll have like a small block of turf Public gym, yeah. and it's very hard to get your turn on that sled. There's so many people there. Um, the one in like when I was living in that Airbnb and renting while the house was getting built, yeah. they had a superstore and they had a turf section, wow. but it was like trying to get your hands on that sled on a 20 yard, like rectangle. Good luck. Yeah. No shot. Um, it's like a sign up sheet. Yeah, basically. <laughs> um, I would probably go with an assault bike. I think that the assault bike is a, is a great lower body cardio equipment that doesn't have any centric loading. So, you know, part of me is like, I might get the runner, the assault runner that we have, because uh, it's a curved treadmill. It's a little bit better for you running. I'm not a huge fan of running, but if you enjoy running, the nice thing about that is you can use it for walking too. You know, you could get on calls and walk in your garage, you know, and for me, that's probably something that would be super beneficial. You can't do that on a assault bike because you're trying to talk on the phone and there's a fan fucking yeah. blowing. Um, if, if it was like, if somebody was doing metabolic conditioning, they never, they weren't going to use it for calls and walks or anything like that. I would probably say assault bike because you can do low intensity, moderate intensity, hard intensity, short bursts, long bursts, moderate bursts. You can put it in a circuit. You can put it as a finisher. It's very diverse. There's no eccentric loading. Um, and it's a full range of motion in your knee. It's so good for your, your joints. Um, because I know Susan, I might say the, uh, Susan's one of my clients. I might say the runner, the assault runner, because yeah. she does work with personal clients and takes calls. Um, and her step counts high. So when the weather gets shitty, it'll be nice to be able to walk on that and take calls. Yeah. Um, so I might say that, but I think in general, for most people, I'll probably say the assault bike for sure. It's a great piece of equipment. That's what I had in my garage gyms. I always had assault bike and a rower. Those are the two things I had in there. Okay. We will go to the next question it is from anonymous. It says about to start coaching a 500 plus client. Uh, pound client how do you recommend starting with this person i know i've heard you say on the podcast before that very overweight people don't need macros in the beginning to see good progress which i agree with but i am curious on how you would start coaching this person since uh tracking initially may not be the best route uh i would be tracking other things you gotta like so this is the thing that i believe at least and this is just based on my experience and i think the psychology of um, success really in anything is that you, you kind of need something to track. So even if it's, uh, checking off the boxes of hitting your meal timing or a protein check or anything, if you check off a box, you feel good. You feel like you accomplished something. You get that reward center tick dopamine fix. Like you're like, yep, I'm doing the fucking work. And that person needs that. So I would still have something to track, but it would probably be like 
four servings of protein per day. Here's your list of protein. And that way it's, it's, it's working with their habits. Usually when you, you want to be very inclusive instead of exclusive with these types of people, because if I tell them, Hey, you need to stop eating candy bars. What do they want to do? Eat fucking candy bars. Yeah. If I tell them you can do whatever the fuck you want. I just want to make sure you drink two protein shakes a day. Cool. They'll accomplish that, and what it's going to do is naturally blunt their hunger to have those other things anyway. So you'll notice that if you get them to eat more protein or, or eat some vegetables or take your fish oil, whatever, you add healthy habits in, you naturally remove or lessen the unhealthy habits that they're currently using, which is going to create a calorie deficit and healthier foods within their calories. They're going to lose weight. So I would be tracking habits with them. I would be in touch with them every single day because – they need more accountability than the average person. So I would say, I want you to send me a picture of every meal yep. every day. You know what I mean? And we're going to, for this week, I want three servings of protein a day. If you don't want to eat any protein, you have three protein shakes. I don't care. We just want to increase your protein. And that's going to be my first attempt. And then it might be water. And then it might be um, movement. You know, even if it's even if it's stretching or, or standing up and sitting down, uh, which is technically a squat. Your body doesn't know you're sitting down. Your body knows that it's going through knee flexion and hip extension and lifting its weight and sitting down. Um, so for somebody that heavy, they might have to do something like that. Um, but I'm just going to focus on simple habits, be in touch with them constantly. And we're just going to build on those habits. Yeah. Very, very simple things until they get to a point where we need to track calories, which for them, they'd probably lose 150 pounds before they got to that point. Um, but it's just habits, getting them to eat more real food so that naturally the, the, unhealthy food gets out and then making sure that you're really identifying the, the positive benefits as they happen. You gotta, you gotta ask them questions to get them to reflect. How are you feeling? How is your sleep? How are your joints? Um, even like things like sweating, like, yeah. are you sweating less often? Do you feel more energy? Because when they notice those things, you can go see that's because we're doing this, right? Oh, you, you have more energy. It's because we have more protein. Oh, you're sweating less. It's because we're losing more fat. Oh, you're doing this. It's because we're getting healthier. And then they can go, okay, well shit, this is actually working rather than us doing sim these simple habits and then them not realizing what these uh, what the benefits even are because they're doing things without any ROI in their mind, right? They're not doing or they're not getting anything out of these yet, which we got to be real. Some of these things take a long time, right? So if you just start having protein, I mean, it's going to take you weeks potentially before you start seeing the benefits of increasing your protein intake, right? At least a couple weeks. You might notice some simple benefits after a week or two, but you got to be able to point these little things out as soon as they happen because then they feel the benefit. They see that there's an immediate ROI. And what that does is it shows them that what they're doing, the work they're putting in, the effort they're putting forward, it's worth it, right? What they're doing is worth the, 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 the result they're getting. It's, it's worth their time and energy and focus um, because it's working, right? It's actually paying off and it's paying off quickly. And that just motivates them to do more. It's, it's like that whole success loop thing. You, you do something that creates a result and that result motivates you to do it again and doing it again creates another result. And now we have this success loop of results actually creating your motivation to continue seeing more positive results. Um, so in a nutshell, what I would say is, is, you know, like take it slow, Go habit by habit. Make sure you're you're like really focusing on each and every little thing that they do. Trying to make sure that you're holding them accountable every day. You got to communicate with them more. Um, adding things in, not taking things away, and then empowering them every time a, a good thing happens, so that they can feel and see the ROI. Um, and when they see that, they're going to be motivated to keep going more and more. So, um, but yeah, that's what I would do. All right, cool. That was the last question of the day. So we will wrap it up there. Cool. Um, no announcements for you guys today. As always, leave us a five-star rating review. If you can, share this with a friend if it helped you. Uh, and we will catch you guys next time.